Welcome to the Control the Room podcast, a series devoted to the exploration of meeting culture and uncovering cures to the common meeting. Some meetings have tight control and others are loose. To control the room means achieving outcomes while striking a balance between imposing and removing structure, asserting and distributing power, leaning in and leaning out, all in the service of having a truly magical meeting. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to join us live for a session sometime, you can join our weekly Control the Room Facilitation Lab. It's a free event to meet fellow facilitators and explore new techniques so you can apply the things you learn in the podcast in real time with other facilitators. Sign up today at voltagecontrol.com facilitation lab. If you'd like to learn more about my book, Magical Meetings, you can download the Magical Meetings Quick Start Guide, a free PDF reference with some of the most important pieces of advice from the book. Download a copy today at magicalmeetings.com. Today, I'm with Kelly Leonard at the Second City, where he is the Executive Director of Learning and Applied Improvisation. He is also the author of Yes And, Lessons from the Second City. For over two decades, Kelly was producer of the Second City, hiring and developing original reviews with such folks as Stephen Colbert, Tina Fey, Steve Carroll, Keegan-Michael Kay, Seth Myers, and Amy Poehler. Welcome to the show, Kelly. Hi, thanks. Thanks, I'm happy to be here. Yeah, great to have you. Been looking forward to this. Well, as usual, let's uh, let's get started with a little bit about how you got your start. Okay, so I graduated college in 1988, and I wanted to be a playwright. That was that was sort of my my passion. I'm the youngest of six boys. My dad uh, was a TV and film guy who reviewed theater in Chicago, so he knew a bunch of people. And he got me a bunch of informational interviews, which was great. Bernie Sollins, who was the founder of Second City, he had sold Second City about four years earlier, was starting a new theater, and he hired me. He said, like, yeah, you can be a production assistant, uh, but I'm not starting for, like, six months. Let me call over to Second City, and we'll get you a job there. And I was like, I don't, you know, I don't know what I was expecting, uh, but I wasn't expecting to be taken to the back bar and have my first gig in theater be a dishwasher because it was not pleasant. The other guy who got hired that week also to wash dishes was John Favreau, uh, the film director. And we both had mullets, and there's my wife has photographic <laughs> evidence of this that she she uses on to, to shame me. So I, I washed dishes for a while, and then I hosted in the room, and I went to go uh, work for Bernie. Uh, and that theater, which was called the Willow Street Carnival, we later referred to it as Second City with Hats. It, it didn't do well. It, it, it folded. So I went back, and my friend Ann uh, hired me in the box office. And just, I, I sort of kept getting promoted, and I was writing plays, like, during the, you know, my off hours and, and submitting them and, and having some, some success. But in 1992... I got offered the job to be the associate producer of The Second City, which is the guy who hires all the talent and oversees all the productions. And, and it, was, it was sort of a thing I couldn't turn down. Um, so I took it. And, you know, if one thinks back to what was happening in Chicago in 1992, my first cast included uh, Steve Carell, Stephen Colbert, and Amy Sedaris. I hired Tina Fey, Amy Poehler, Rachel Dratch, uh, Jason Sudeikis, uh, Cecily Strong, just tons of great people. And it really was uh, a a dream job. And I did that until 2015 when I co-wrote the book Yes And, which is about how Second City takes its improv practices and pedagogy into businesses and into caregiving spaces. And, And really, my first part of my career was improv on stage, and then my second chapter, which I'm in now, is improv off stage, improv everywhere else. Yeah, I love this idea of 
improv everywhere and a big fan of the book. Mm-hmm. I wanted to come back to the second city in hats and it reminded <laughs> yeah. me of a few things that come up. It was a consistent thread through the book of, you know, trying things, experimenting, learning, and just kind of dusting yourself off when it wasn't quite right and figuring it out. And I, I remember there was quite a few stories like that. Yeah. I mean, look, we we live in a culture, unfortunately, uh, that acts as if failure is something that shouldn't happen when in fact that we we learn when we get it wrong we don't learn when we get when we get it right carol dweck who is the uh, gro- she writes about growth mindset uh talks about you know when 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 a student gets something wrong you shouldn't say you got it wrong you should say not yet uh because you know we all get things wrong so improv and 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 i don't know i don't know if you know where all this stuff came from i, I certainly talk about it in the book but the, many of the exercises and games that we still teach at Second City were developed by a social worker by the name of Viola Spolin, and she was working at Jane Addams Hull House in the 1920s and 1930s, and her job was to better assimilate immigrant children who were coming into her care. So she created all these exercises and games that allowed people to communicate with empathy and collaborate. Her son, Paul Sills, was studying at the University of Chicago. He taught these games to his friends, people like Mike Nichols and Elaine May. They formed the first improvisational theater in the country called the Compass Players. That's in 1957. That morphs into the Second City by 1959. So social work is where this stuff came from. So it's really about how we can practice our human being skills our human skills, because we're not good listeners. We're afraid of failure. We have a lot of judgment of others and judgment of self. And you cannot be creative if you are self-judging or you're judging others. You simply can't. And creativity does not happen alone. You know, there's always, it's with other people, it's with audiences, all those things. So, so many of the improv practices that we teach for people to become really good comedians, improvisers, actors, comedians, are equally as effective for the kind of skills that we use in our life, uh, because we we are born without scripts, uh, and we are improvising every day. All of us are. Yeah, I'm a big fan of viola. In fact, I'm also a big nerd about like facilitation and improv cards and games. And there's an amazing card deck, a box set of her work that's just like it's so massive. I mean, it's like yeah. 110 games or something. It's crazy. I love your point about not yet. And it reminds me of like 409 and WD-40 and all these classic stories of, you know, no one got it right on the first try. That's right. I mean, post-it notes. Yeah. Uh, Listerine. I just found this out from a, a guest on my podcast that Listerine was originally used to treat gonorrhea. Mm. Very different use right now. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So, so if we can get in that space where we're practiced in recognizing we're going to fail, that's okay, go back at it we're really then operating in the scientific method, which is experimentation over and over and over again. This is, this is how anything uh, new comes to life, is that you, you, someone, someone has to try it, and it's likely not going to succeed on the first, second, or third try. Uh, so we know that. That's how we create our shows at Second City. We have a 12-week process. We develop in front of the audience, and we know the first four weeks there's going to be a lot of seemingly garbage. Uh, but we allow that seemingly gar- uh, garbage to surface because there might be a gem actually inside there, especially when sort of looked at a different way. So this sort of embedded um, innovation practice uh, that exists at Second City is born of teaching individuals better skills uh, for things like listening, uh, paying attention. And, and then our work, 
with the behavioral science community has just deepened that. So, mm -hmm. so as we've sort of worked with the various academics that we work with, they'll give us insights that we didn't know. I mean, you know, we teach in sec at Second City to be others focused. And I, I think we all kind of know what that means, paying attention to other people. Uh, but when we learn about things, there's a, a William Swan, who's a professor down in Texas, uh, came up with a thing called self-verification theory. And this was fascinating to me. Uh, the idea is, I think most of us think we want to be seen as our best selves, our smartest selves. But the, Swan says that's not true. We want to be seen as we see ourselves. So if I see myself as clumsy, it's important that you see me as clumsy so you won't throw me a ball. But hmm. human beings are tricky, and I'm not going to tell you that. I might not even be working with that you know, at the top of my mind. I think self-verification theory also maybe is, explains why people date assholes. <laughs> if, if you have low self-esteem and you have someone treat you like, you know, you have no esteem, you're, you're scratching an itch. Mm. That's uh, that's pretty deep. I think that could actually really help people that are in all sorts of collaborative moments better understand the full person that's showing up in the room, right? Because I think a lot of times yeah. uh, when people are collaborating, they, they look at their coworkers very two-dimensionally. For sure. Uh, and, and Nick Epley, who's one of the scientists we work with, has all this research that we really don't get it right in these rooms most of the time with mm. other people. He, he marks it at around 20 to 30 percent that we're oh. perceiving correctly. And, 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 and we've created exercises around this, too, because the other thing that he notes in his work is that individuals tend not to share specifics about themselves because they think other people don't care, when in fact, even seemingly banal uh, specifics could lead to faster, better relationships. So when we saw this literature, and we, he was going to be teaching in, in an executive education program, uh, my wife Anne actually developed an um, exercise to go along with it called Universal Unique. So we pair up two people, person A and person B, and we pick a banal topic like grocery shopping. And we say, person A, in a minute, explain how human beings grocery shop. You know, you get in a car, you go to the store, whatever. They do that for automatic. And then she goes back and says, okay, think for a moment about how you personally grocery shop. Now take a minute and do that. Inevitably, there's laughter in the room, and people are saying, oh, I learned so much about you just from hearing that. And we're talking about grocery shopping. We're not talking about deep stuff. But when we draw from the specifics of our lives, I mean, this is why Seinfeld was funny. It's, it's, it's all these seemingly, again, banal specifics, but they end up being true. And, the, and when, we can, when we can see someone as true, uh, multidimensional, as, as you said, that changes the game. That, that is, that's, that's where you go from, like, okay teams to, like, brilliant, high-performing teams. You know, I, I love that point you made about better, faster relationships because I think that's a key piece that so many people miss is the importance of relationships. Because it's not just about the operational pieces that we have to do or the you know, the logistics, it's, we got, if we're going to work together, we really need to, there needs to be a relational foundation there. Relationships are everything. The, the, the longest study that I know that's ever been done is called the Grant Study in Harvard. And it's uh, looked at a group of men who are now in their 80s. So this is like an 80-year-old study. Uh, and uh, they're trying to define happiness, what, what, what causes happiness. And there's one result across all domains with all these men, and it's their relationships. And it doesn't mean that it's a couple who never bickers. They, they could bicker all the time, but, the, but they're together and they're okay and they get over their bickering. Uh, but it, having rich uh, relationships with a, lo a lot of people is a definition of happiness. It also leads to better health outcomes, to wealth, all, all those things. So 
I mean, I like I kind of I got this I, without putting words to it when I started working at Second City, in part because we build these ensembles, these highly functioning ensembles, and you could sort of see it. But then sort of being introduced to the sort of academic underpinnings, it's like, oh, this is life-changing stuff. If, if, we can, if we can know this, and then if we can practice this, that's, that's the key, because people don't, we don't practice being human, really. You know, we might have a mindfulness practice, we might work out, we might play a team sport or, or, or whatever. And, and, and honestly, the, the person who's gonna figure out how to make improv like yoga will be a billionaire, and I, I wish it were me, I don't, I don't think it's gonna be. But we really need, and, and we do these workshops all the time with people, we need to practice this stuff. Because it's not like you go to the gym once and you're good. Mm. Listening takes work. And, and especially, especially like listening to your spouse. Because you've been with it. I've been married for, you know, uh, a couple decades. And I still have to work at put my phone down, listen to everything she's saying, put my attention on her. Because it's just easier to do the other thing. Yeah, it comes back to a really solid point that you have in the book, which is listening to understand. Yeah, yeah. What, what, and that, and the, again, that takes work because people don't share all of it mm. and they might not even know all of it. I mean, I've certainly been in therapy long enough to, you know, realize that, you know, that, that like, you know, human beings are storytelling machines and we really like easy patterns. So when we lock onto something uh, that seems true, we anchor on it and we're like, oh, that's it. And then, like anything, whenever you interrogate something, and we know this from looking at our past, right? When you interrogate something, you're like, oh, I didn't know this was going on and that was going on. And I didn't know they had this belief that was different from my belief. I just assumed it was, it was all, all working. And sometimes it does, despite all that, which is, which is amazing. But the, the reality in terms of really successful outcomes, if it's in your job, it's in, in, in your relationships, any of that stuff, is when you truly see the other person and they see that you see them, and vice versa. You know, I think that point about them noticing that they've been seeing is so key. Yeah. It reminds me of a, a study that Slack did. They, they have this futures forum where they're investigating oh. work and the future of work, and uh, they talk. one of the statistics was that 73% of leaders think they're being transparent, while, while less than half of the employees think the leaders are transparent. You know, our perception of these things matter less than how they're perceived on the other end. Yeah, that, that's totally right. And, and, and so I think it's important, this is especially true for leaders, as you're saying, which is you can't make a ton of assumptions and you've got to work even harder to get people to tell you the truth. So when I'm working in a leadership position at Second City and there's someone relatively new, I make sure that I get behind, I, I move from behind my desk, I sit next to them. Sometimes I lower my status if I can. And here's a, here's a, a big thing, I ask them questions mm -hmm. and I ask them for advice. That, that changes the relationship in really positive ways, especially if there's a power dynamic there. So you have to be aware of like, what is the dynamic and what's the space we're sitting in? Because that, that says something too. It's different in a conference room than it is in an office than it is in front of other people. My friend Kim Scott, who wrote the book Radical Candor, one of the reasons I love her work so much is that it really speaks to, to, to the idea that you, let's say you have to do a performance review, you know, do not criticize someone in public. You know, um, praise them in public. Do that. That's a good thing. But if you have a critique, you take that away, just, just the two of you, and recognize that you can't be operating in radical candor unless the person knows that you care for them personally. Otherwise, it's obnoxious aggression. And to get to, get to radical candor uh, takes everything we're talking about. It takes a really intentional building 
of a mutually appreciated relationship. The, dyna the dynamic, as we were sort of talking about, like, it's not just you. And it's, and it's not even necessarily just the other person. There are lots of different dynamics that are taking place here. So be aware as you can of all the factors that might go into how this person thinks about working with you. I want to come back to the point I made earlier about you using these opportunities for learning, not only in your product, but also in your culture. I know that in the book you spoke about kind of intentionally looking at diversity of the ensembles yeah. and and how you support you know just cultural changes and that's i think that's a that's a higher level of being than even just using the techniques to make the product better yeah and i don't want to pretend that we like nailed it because we we haven't and you know during the sort of social justice uprising a lot of crap was unearthed that folks didn't know or perceive or understand and i remember um john carr who used to be our uh, executive producer, uh, we, we had heard complaints about artwork on the walls. And neither John or I really understood what, what that was. He, he's African-American male. I'm, I'm a white male. And so I said, well, let's go down and look. And these these drawings that were done by an illustrator who worked at Playboy over the years, uh, Bill Utterback, he, he did drawings of every cast. And as we started looking at some of these drawings, we're like, oh, no, there's a Caucasian person with a sombrero. Oh no, there's someone wearing hijab. I mean, like a white person wearing it. And 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 then then Dan Castellaneta, who's Homer Simpson, did this very funny Hitler bit uh, that was satiric, but if you just see a picture of a guy dressed as Hitler with no context, and I understand it's a comedy theater, but I, I imagine many people looked at that picture and were uncomfortable. Mm. And, and I just like you know when when you go to a place for I worked at Second City 34 years, you know, so so you you stop seeing things. And this was an eye opener. So I know for, for myself, I've had to redig into, you know, interrogating my own uh, behavior and my own thinking, and and as well as double down on the improv stuff because the improv stuff is great for this. It is all about inclusion, and it's it's about maintaining equity in an ensemble. It, it, there, there's a phrase that we've all heard: "Your team is only as good as, as its weakest member." And we, we say it differently. We say your team is o is only as good as its ability to compensate for its weakest member, because mm -hmm. one of us is going to be the weakest member at some time, and that's going to shift off. So, if you're really operating as a, as an ensemble, everyone's got your back. Everyone's got your back, and you have everyone's back. That is not a way that I find most businesses. Uh, they're, they're not teaching that. That's not in the employee handbook, and it should be. Well, especially if there's uh, like any kind of stack ranking kind of going on, you know, it's like uh, the exact opposite, right? It's like we're putting a spotlight yeah. on who's the weakest versus like how can we we can support each other. And I think it's a real reductive way of kind of looking at things because in a complex world, if we stack each other around all these different situations and scenarios and skills – someone's going to be at the bottom at some point when you look at it from a different angle. And so having this perspective of supporting each other makes us re more resilient to like whatever's thrown at us. Yeah. And, and, and you, you know, if someone's sitting in last, you know, there might be reasons if you haven't asked, there could be other stuff going on. They, 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 they might, they might not know what to do. Maybe mm -hmm. you didn't tra you train them well enough, whatever. I mean, I, I've worked with so many people over the year years, and I can count on one hand uh, the number of people I'm like, yeah, I would just not work with this person. Like almost everyone that I've worked with has has value to bring to the table, and it was a, a, often a matter of whether we were 
our system was set up for them to benefit or not. So we're, we're trying to get better. I think we're very good at the behaviors at Second City, like, like the, the, the individual and group behaviors. That is our, that is our strong suit. And we have systems uh, uh, like the process for creating our show that are amazing. Um, we need to now, and, and we got bought by a new owner and we have a new CEO, and we're very, we're very clearly talking about this. Like, how do we make the business operate as as powerfully as equitably as the art does mm. and if we can do that we got it uh and and i'm and i'm i'm encouraged by where we're going with this that's amazing i love that and i really want to come back to this idea of it's easy to stop seeing things you know it reminds yeah. me of it, it, when you're driving on the road you know to and mm -hmm. from work or whatever and and you've driven that stretch of highway for many many times you get to a point where like you know, there's some days where you're like, whoa, I don't even remember the last two minutes of that drive because, you know, it's ingrained in my memory and my brain shut off. And that happens at work and in and, and all sorts of ways. And, and I think that point you made about just not seeing stuff, and it's a real testament to you and the team that when it surfaced, you were willing to embrace it because it can be scary to for that to happen. And I think a lot of people shut those kinds of things down because they don't want oh, to embrace that. Sure. No, 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 because you're, you're, you know, that, that there's shame, mm -hmm. right? I mean, like if, if someone's calling you out on a thing you said, I don't care if it's 25, 26, 27 years ago, you know, they were hurt by the thing I said. And I had to like own that. And I also wasn't about and shouldn't be centering myself inside that story. So that does take work. And, and but this is all related uh, to the way we, we think. Uh, uh, Danny Kahneman, who wrote uh, Thinking Fast and Slow, talks about System 1, System 2 brain. So our System 1 brain is the shortcut, and we need to. There are so many bits of information coming in for us to process. We have to sort of eliminate. We have to, like, just, you know, like, oh, that's, that's, a, that's a man. Like, like and, and it might not be later, and that might be funny. But System 2 is where we can deliberate and sort of go more slowly. The cool thing about when you're improvising is you're doing both. You're going back and forth, system one, system two, system one, system two, which is why Second City uh, trained uh, folk are such incredible divergent thinkers. You know, and, and so, so I've interviewed a bunch of people who deal in navigating ambiguity and paradox, and they're all like, like man, I'd love to study your six main stage cast members going through this process. Actually, we, we have an academic coming in next month to look at the show, look at the pr process and seeing if they can do that. Cause we tape the shows every night and, and the improv sets were in process because, because I've been, I don't know if you've seen this, there's been so many uh, articles about the fact that brainstorming doesn't work. Mm -hmm. and, and they're like, Oh, there's all this research. Brainstorming doesn't work. And I'm like, that's pretty ridiculous because th what you've never done is study a small team because to have the research be valid, you need to look at, you know, 3,000, 4,000, 10,000, you know, your people. But, but the reality is most of us don't work like that. We don't work just in duos or, or trios or whatever it is. We probably have a team of like 10 to 12 or whatever, six in the case of a Second City cast. And I will guarantee you, I mean, you can call it brainstorming, you can call it something else, that you're not getting to great ideas by everyone working in a silo. This is ridiculous. It is, it is when someone else can add to your idea. In, in our work, we say when, when you're doing this work, you need to bring a brick, not a cathedral. Mm -hmm. If you just bring your cathedral, you know, it's not going to get added to. And, and I have my brick, you have your brick, and we're going to build this thing together. Again, how it works in the world. This is another bad thing our culture does, which is this myth of the soul creative. Like, like Steve Jobs didn't invent the iPhone. That got 
brought to him. <laughs> now, was he a genius in terms of design and marketing? Sure. But like in no world did he operate alone. I mean, Edison was like this too. Edison had a, literally a factory of, of, of people inventing the things that he put his name on. But, but we're, you know, somehow the American myth needs it to be uh, one white guy. Mm -hmm. You know, I, that's definitely a, a thing that has been perpetuated. And coming back to the brainstorming piece, I, I think the reason that folks love to crucify that, if you will, is because yes. uh, so many people get it wrong from a perspective of structure and rules. Like, mm -hmm. if, to your point, if people are doing it and everyone's bringing cathedrals, it's not going to work, right? And if, Or if yep. people are in a place where they can't sit in that exploratory space and they have to inject the constraints too early. And there's lots of reasons why I think it doesn't work. And it's a lot more inflammatory to say brainstorming doesn't work than it is to be like, well, if you look at the details, this is why it's not working. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and I look, I, I've seen the research and I believe it that the person who uh, talks the most uh, tends to get their way. Uh, honestly, that's why I've been successful in my career. I, I, I'm not afraid to talk the most. Uh, and, and, you know, people will just like, uh, th here's a great example of this. My wife and I have uh, traveled a lot and we traveled a lot like to Europe with Second City Casts. And inevitably, everyone will follow me. I am terrible at directions. But I will just move to the top of the line and start walking somewhere until Anne has to remind me that I'm terrible at directions and I'm going the wrong way and I should be following her. <laughs> and I'm like, this is such a great reminder because it's like, I, I just sort of assume, you know, that I'm in charge and I'm, you know, a, 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 a tall white guy. Like, like it, and so, so it's, it's really important, again, especially for those of us who are in these leadership positions to take a look at ourselves and make room uh, for for all the voices, mm. because you know introverts offer a world uh, uh, to us because they're more deliberative. And and again, when you shut up and just look around, you see more. So I, I want input from that person. You know, the other thing I've I've seen be effective there is some of these folks that are quiet are sometimes extroverts. But they're the type of people that like to process things a little, little yeah, more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so yeah. giving them a little bit of a heads up before we go into the thing around what are we diving into so they can kind of get some ideas rolling before. So I see a lot of times people brainstorm. It's like, okay, let's brainstorm. And it's like, you know, some heads up will help a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. I mean, set the table. Mm -hmm. This is also a thing that, that and we, we've been talking about this a lot at Second City, is like, we got to get better at setting the table. Like, like what, what's the expectation from this project or the show? What, what looks like success to you? Here's what the success looks like to me. So that then we can do check-ins uh, to make sure we're on the, the right path. And then afterwards, um, whether a thing works or not, we can maybe understand why. And if it didn't work, we'll have data and info for it to work better next time. All of that stuff is is hugely important. But I mean, you know, like the speed, uh, there's just not enough people and the days go by and it's hard and, you know, everyone's busy. And so there's all these really, really good reasons to not do it right. But I, I, any, any success that I've seen in my decades at Second City came from us sort of slowing, slowing down, trusting the process, trusting each other, uh, and, and that's when we make beautiful things. That's incredible. I love it. You made a, mo uh, a comment about laughter a little bit ago. And, yeah. uh, I think you were talking about the fast 
thinking, yeah. and this is a man, and later that might not be the case. And I recently read an article about laughter and, and how laughter shows up in, in nature. There are other animals who laugh. And yep. apparently it's an evolutional thing where we laugh to let everyone know that things are okay. So it's like a release of tension. It's a release, a release of like fear. And so you kind of describe that, right? Because when, when the joke gets set up and the information is is incongruent and then we get the release, then it, then it creates the laughter. And I thought that, wow, how, how cool is that? And it's like a deeply, like it's an uh, evolutionary mechanism that's helped us survive. Yeah, so I'm married to a, a, a tenured comedy professor who's just about to hand in her second book, uh, and it's all theory, comedy theory. And so she goes in, in, in into this exact uh, you know space uh, of, you know, we we used it as a way uh, in in very early days to, as you say, signal to everyone that like, oh, this thing I thought was a threat or whatever isn't, and and so there's that release. The other um, uh, recent research that I've seen is that the same part of the brain that processes an insight is the part of the brain that processes a joke. Again, being like the aha ha ha that 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 that's sort of so when you when you understand that like you you can apply that really powerfully in a variety of contexts, advertising. So so what we know is we we want our brand someone to have an emotional reaction to our brand. Okay, effective use of comedy. What what's the thing they're going to laugh about when it comes to your brand? And if you can bottle that, that's amazing. I mean it it, it always it makes me laugh that, you know, probably billions of dollars are spent on advertising uh, and, and a lot of comedic-based advertising and how many comedy professionals are in the advertising world. Mm. I, I don't think very – I've met a lot of people in advertising, and they're not very funny. <laughs> and, and also, that's another myth of the soul creative, right? That, that it's like, oh, just this guy, he's our main guy. Stick him in a room, and he'll be able to do this for all your different brands. Like, that's not how it works. <laughs> it's not – how it works. Uh, so, so part of my wife's theory around comedy is that if you look at it like a mixing board, you're, you're mixing uh, truth, pain, and distance. So, uh, and truth can be just recognition. And then pain is, is some level of pain that's appropriate to the situation. So, you know, right after 9-11, you, you can't make jokes about it, especially in New York. Uh, a year after 9-11, you probably still can in New York, but you could in Chicago, and that's that's a matter of of distance and and, and pain mixing together. And we had I write about that in the book where where we did a scene, satirical scene, a year a after uh, Columbine, and this freshman at Northwestern who was at Columbine just ran screaming from the room, and and had a really heart to heart conversation of like we wouldn't do this if we were in Columbine because you still don't have that distance, but the rest of us are, are here and it's a historical fact that we're kind of playing with to make a satiric point. And we weren't making fun of it, but it was still, it's, it's, it was, it was too close for her. Mm. And I get it. Yeah. And you know, that shows up in the workplace too, right? Like if we, if yeah. we're not relating, we're not understanding where people are. It's hard to be uh, cognizant of those things and take them into account. Yeah, I, I, you know, I've interviewed a bunch of people around the idea of suffering at work, and I think this is this this is now very um, uh, top of mind for many HR departments because you know all of a sudden after the pandemic, everyone realizes that oh, mental health is a thing, and it's not something that is rare. 
People have mental health issues. A ton of people do. Uh, they just didn't talk about it. And when you don't talk about it, that is a bad thing. You are pushing a bad thing down that is going to come out in some really, really negative way at some point, uh, either to yourself, your, your spouse, your kids, your friends, you know, who, who knows. So when we can acknowledge people's pain, and my friend, my friend Heidi Brooks at Yale does a thing where uh, every time she's teaching a new cohort, uh, first, first day of class, she goes, okay, before we start anything, I'm going to hand out a blank piece of paper and a pen to everyone. Don't put your name on this piece of paper, but write down some pain you're experiencing right now. And she'll get anything from, you know, a sprained ankle to a recent divorce mm. to a death of a loved one. And she just reads those out. And it, it's like empathy steroids uh, for that class. That's amazing. I love it. Mm -hmm. I want to bring up something that I think that I'd written down that I wanted to maybe hit on. And that was this idea of learning to be unafraid. And mm -hmm. it's so provocative because, and it kind of ties a little bit back to what we were talking about with the laughter piece around, because getting to the laugh, we might have to create a sense of uncertainty or a sense of fear. Yeah. And so and when you're engaging in these improv type activities, you're having to move through that liminal space that may feel a bit frightening. So learning to be unafraid and kind of embracing the fear. I don't know. I'd love to hear some further thoughts on that. Yeah. Uh, so Del Close, the sort of famous improv guru, talks about following the fear. Uh, Rick Thomas, uh, another really bright uh, improv teacher, director, actor, uh, he has the phrase, you need to fall into the crack in the game, mm. which I love. And that requires you to sort of visit, visit some stuff that might be a little troubling for, for, for you or others. But you don't, you, you mean that, again, we're trying, at, at, at worst, when we create a Second City show, it's going to be funny. But what we're, what we're shooting for is funny in art. <laughs> we want to like say something about the human condition. And, you know, we are, you know, there is no joy without suffering. And that, 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 is just, that is just true. And we do try to hide, I think, a lot from the suffering. But if we can explore it and then come out the other end with some really great comedy, th that's, that's my favorite stuff that I see in, in, in any art form, but especially in, in really smart comedy, is that it's provocative and it's human. And, and it, it, it doesn't always need to be political. One of the piece, uh, a piece that I do not find political at all is about Trump. It's John Mulaney's uh, horse in the hospital bit that Trump is like a horse in the hospital. <laughs> like we're like, what's what's happening with the horse in the hospital? What floor? Like when I see the horse in the hospital, what's going to happen? It's, it's just very, very funny because I think it's getting at something that I don't care if you're on the right or left. You get what that's about. Mm -hmm. You get the, the idea of what the, the kind of like mayhem that this particular figure uh, presents. And you may be for that, for, for whatever your reasons are. You may be highly against that, like I am for, for uh, other kinds of reasons. But it's true. So I think that, you know, no one got into improv comedy because they're fully self-actualized. Mm. That, that we, we're, we're not the place where like the peaceful mind comes uh, to rest. No, you're coming here because something happened or you you're or you're restless and you need to kind of work it out with your friends, uh, which is what happens. So, so, you know, I, I love, you know, all the talent that comes through Second City. I remember we've been hired to create a series of PSAs about mental health using comedy. And so I sent out an email to we have this massive email list. It's all the talent to basically say, hey. Anyone have experience with you know mental illness? And in this regard, we got this PSA. I mean, the amount of emails I got back was like 
90% of the talent. I mean, it really was like, oh, all right. And I don't know why I didn't like that should be obvious to me. Uh, but but it wasn't, and it really sort of came home. And and I know this having gone through a personal tragedy myself, is that if you take the time to ask someone or you share your grief journey or, or something with someone else, they're going to share something that they haven't told you. They may be t- telling it to a therapist or someone else, hopefully. But a lot of people out there are in pain. Yeah. You know, here at Voltage Control, we're, we're big fans of Ted Lasso because I, it's such a yeah. a great and very popular display of, of just great coaching and great facilitation. I mean, just how... Uh, just some of the jokes and and it had some real depth to like you know what it means to take care of humans, and they covered some mental health stuff I think pretty gracefully and and also with a real reality right like I think there's a lot of people that are in that space of like being fearful of getting help and anyway it was really really quite good. Well, the connect point there for me and I'll share I'll share so there's a number of writers on staff who are you know close friends of ours obviously Jason uh, and uh, is a second city alum uh, 4 years ago our daughter Nora when she was 16 got diagnosed with cancer mm-hmm. and she died a year later so it's been 3 3 years and we got a call it was Nora's birthday the I think it was the first or second anniversary and from our friend Ashley Nicole Black who writes writes on the series and and she was working on season 2 as a writer and she uh, said, hey, uh, we, we decided to name a character and base a character after Nora. Um, uh, and that's her god, goddaughter. Um, and she's wearing the green headscarf, which is what Nora used to always wear. Because Ashley and our friend Chelsea had babysat her, and they were both working on the show. And so that ethic doesn't just happen on the show. It was this like beautiful tribute that they gave to us that will exist forever. Because these these humans, you know, are are sort of again drenched in in this improv mindset of, of care, uh, and 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 we actually had created an improvisation for caregivers program previous to all of this, so we'd already sort of you know sauntered down that that alley, and so we used it in our own uh, um, experience when when Nora was in the hospital. It's it's harder in terms of the the sort of grief and, and trauma part of it. I was less prepared for that. But then again, I got I got uh, gifted a book um, uh, by Bessel van der Kork, it, it, and I'm forgetting the name of it. But it's about how trauma lives in the body. And towards the end of the book, there's a whole section on improv. And his his son had gotten into improv and realized that this is something that because it's embodied, an embodied practice could be helpful for people who are, are overgrowing trauma. And that, you know, that's that's another world I, I live in. I don't, you know, I, we also, in improv, say you got to play the scene you're in, not the, the scene you want to be in. So I don't want to be in this scene. I, like, who would? That's madness. But I'm in it. Uh, mm-hmm. And so being in it means if, the, the best way I can take care of myself and others is by focusing on the other person, uh, by making them look good, by truly listening, by being open uh, and curious. We have this idea that you need to replace blame with curiosity. Mm-hmm. If you can remain curious, especially in the face of complex situations, your success rate is going to be higher than others. Wow. What an amazing story. Thank you for sharing that. And, you know, I we, we certainly have had our share of grief here at Voltage Control, and we lost a team member almost a year ago now, and I've spent a bunch uh, of work trying to memorialize her in a number of ways. And I'm glad that yeah. they did that on the show. I had no idea. So now now that's another thing yeah. that I can carry with me as a special little memory of that yeah. show. Yeah. No, it was it was it was it was lovely and and 
and her school uh, built a park and named it after her um, at Chicago Waldorf School. So that there's the, the you know, you, you you lose someone, which is terrible and and awful. But what I found is tr- trying to keep her, she's with me, you know, and 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 these other sort of reminders are are are, are there as well, w- which are lovely. But yeah, it's a it's a journey. Amazing. Well. I'm glad that uh, that people are recognizing her. I think that's so important to hear the stories and to and to remember, and such a great way to heal. And gosh, you know, I wanted to uh, always appreciate ending with a little bit of kind of dialogue around what can be possible if we continue to do this kind of work. And we were sort of hinting at that in that last bit there around. You know, if, pe- yeah. if more people are showing up in these ways and helping each other heal, I think it creates more harmony, a greater ability to cope and 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 be human. Yeah. When when we were first, uh, we we had a four year uh, program at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business called the Second Science Project that looks looks at behavioral science through the lens of improvisation and vice versa. When Heather Caruso, who I co led that program with, she's a social scientist. I, I offered this proposition to her. I said, if if only we did this, if only we improved everyone's listening by 2%, do you think that would change the world? And we both said yes. Like, I have, I have no doubt. More things need to be done than just that. But if, if you start with that sort of basic premise or you believe something like that, and I think that's that, that could apply to a, a number of different areas that we're talking about. Uh, Carl Weick is a uh, retired uh, academic, and he has a great f- phrase that I often end my keynotes with, which is, you need to fight like you're right and listen like you're wrong. Mm. And I think that that embodies everything. Like, be passionate and, and throw out your ideas and care about them and fight for them. And then if you are able to listen like you're wrong, you're going to have the humility that that can create other kinds of opportunity because none of us know it all and all of us need each other. And and especially the world we live in right now where it feels like 50% of the country is fighting with the other 50% or call it 48 or whatever it is. I get it, but it's not doing us good. It's doing no one good. And we use terms like canceling and blocking and muting. And I'm just like, oh my God. Like, if we know science tells us the thing that gets us through is relationships, why are we, why are we all f- fighting? And, and again, you need to fight for some stuff, you know, and, and, and representation and equity and all that. Fight like mad for that. But if we can also extend grace, if we can, ex- if we can give someone our gratitude, if we can really listen to them, I think you're going to find that most of us have more in common than than the opposite. I agree. And what an amazing thing to use as fuel for our commitment or our practice is we just got to increase it two percent. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. Don't you're not going you're not going ch- and you're not going to change people like like people don't change like that. But 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 the but to get to a better outcome, just simply to get to a better outcome, uh, put all your focus on the person across from you. And, and try to do that as much as you can. So I want to give you an opportunity to leave our listeners with a final thought. Yeah, okay. So I host a podcast called Getting DSN for Second City and WGN Radio, and I get to interview lots of cool people with, the, with their books. And there is a concept that was introduced to me by Annie Duke. So Annie was an academic uh, who was coming up on her PhD this years ago, and she got sick, like, and she had to take take 
stop. And she needed money. She was, did not come from money. And she was trying to figure out what she could do. And her brother, who was a professional poker player, said, why don't you do what I do? And so she did. And for the next like 18 years, she played professional poker and made millions and millions and millions of dollars. She is now back at Wharton to get her PhD. And she's written a couple successful books, but her new one is called Quit. And here's the concept that, that I, I, it just it blew me away and that I'm finding useful when I'm navigating complexity. So she talks to Astro Teller uh, at Google's X. So he, he leads a division of the company that is looking for these like loon shots. They have a 10 years to cure cancer or 10 years to build, you know, whatever. They, they, and and they, they have to quit a lot of these projects because they, they've got to see progress. So he has a concept that he teaches all his people at, at Google X, and it's called the monkey on the pedestal. And the idea here is if your job is to teach a monkey to recite Shakespeare on a pedestal, don't build the pedestal first because it'll give you the illusion of progress. Because if, if you can't get the monkey to recite Shakespeare, you're done, you're quitting, and you go to the next thing. The amount of pedestal building I have done in my career <laughs> is like massive. So I, I really, when, when I'm thinking about a new project or a new show or a new program or whatever, this is the thing I'm going to apply first, which is, all right, what's the hardest part of this thing? Let's, let's, let's make sure we can do that. And because we all know how to build ped pedestals. I can, do, I can do that in my sleep. Amazing. Thank you for reminding me of this because it's actually something that's going to come invaluable for me right now. And uh, I haven't <laughs> thought about it in a while. So thanks for, for the reminder. And uh, yeah, of course, I highly encourage people to check out the book. It's fantastic. And of course, Second City, if you're in Chicago, I mean, gosh, what a fun excursion. And um, thanks so much for being here today. I, I, I feel like we could talk for at least a couple more hours, but uh, every good thing has to come to an end. So I uh, really appreciate you taking the time, Kelly. Thanks, Douglas. I appreciate it. Thanks for joining me for another episode of Control the Room. Don't forget to subscribe to receive updates when new episodes are released. And if you want to know more, head over to our blog where I post weekly articles and resources about radical inclusion, team health, and working better. VoltageControl.com. <laughs>